That's Acts 15. We start there in the first verse. We'll read the first six verses there and then come down to the 23rd. Hear once again the word of our God. And certain men which came down from Judea taught the brethren and said, Except you be circumcised after the manner of Moses, ye cannot be saved. When therefore Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and disputation with them, they determined that Paul and Barnabas and certain other of them should go up to Jerusalem under the apostles and elders about this question. And being brought on their way to the church, they passed through Phoenice and Samaria, declaring the conversion of the Gentiles. And they caused great joy unto all the brethren. And when they were come to Jerusalem, they were received of the church and of the apostles and elders, and they declared all things that God had done with them. But there arose up certain of the sect of the Pharisees, which believed, saying that it was needful to circumcise them and to command them to keep the law of Moses. And the apostles and elders came together for to consider this matter. And then if you would come down to verse 23. And they wrote letters by them after this manner. The apostles and elders and brethren send greeting unto the brethren, which are of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia. For as much as we have heard that certain which went out from us have troubled you with words, subverting your souls, saying, Ye must be circumcised and keep the law, to whom we gave no such commandment, it seemeth good unto us, being assembled with one accord, to send chosen men unto you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul. Men that have hazarded their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have sent therefore Judas and Silas, who shall also tell you the same things by mouth. For it seemed good to the Holy Ghost and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these necessary things. That ye abstain from meats offered to idols, and from blood and from things strangled, and from fornication. From which, if ye keep yourselves... He shall do well. Fare ye well. Amen. May the Lord add to us this evening the blessing of his word. Our interest in these evenings is to take up the subject of the church of Jesus Christ. And friend, before we come to this subject, it's so necessary for us to say at the onset, we're here considering a holy institution. We're here looking at something, friend, that we should approach with the greatest care with the greatest reverence. And that's why, of course, we're turning to the Word of God, not to the opinions of men, to understand what the Church of Christ is, its constitution, its remit, its work. And beloved, as we look at this text, we can't miss the fact, and as we've considered these past several Lord's Day evenings, the various texts that the Lord has set before us, we can't miss the fact that our God has given us very specific ideas of what the Church of Christ is. And also even what it isn't. This evening is no different. We come to the word of God asking, genuinely seeking, as Cornelius did before Peter, whatsoever things God has commanded with regard to his church specifically. What is this institution that God has appointed? And friend, we should learn, even now as we come to this text, that these things, though they may seem so mundane to us or holy, though they may seem like small, even trivial matters, Friend, they're far from it. This is the church of Jesus Christ. And as we've considered the church, of course, we've thought of her as she is Catholic and visible. In the sense that all of those who profess faith in Jesus Christ 
regardless of their nationality, regardless of their place, even regardless of their type, are part of what the confession calls the Catholic visible church. Now the question, of course, is, well, what, what really does their activity look like? How do they enjoy those things that God has given them? And, and so we consider what we refer to as the particular church. Those members of the visible Catholic church who profess faith come together under a common confession, seeking the ordinances of Christ, and particularly Christ's presence in those ordinances. In other words, they come under the means of grace, which include not only the sacraments, but even the government of the church. And we saw as well that the character of these particular churches is genuinely organic. We saw that she is a living body. She's not merely a cold or a formal institution, but she's to be vibrant, fruit-bearing, really. And the way in which she is fruit-bearing, the means that Christ has appointed to make her a vibrant body, is even in her own structures of government. Even through the ministry of the gospel that has been committed to those whom he's called. And that brought us last Lord's Day to consider the power of the keys. Uh, those keys of doctrine and of discipline. Christ entrusting them to his officers in the church. Well, that leads us this evening to a question. How do those who have had the keys committed to them exercise those powers? In other words, what is the structure of their government? How is it that they rule in the church according to Christ's appointment? And that brings us, of course, to Acts 15. Now, before we come to the text itself, it's important for me to tell you that there are three basic elements that we can't miss as we look at this 15th chapter. First of all, in the fifth verse, we're given its context. There are those who we refer to as Judaizers. And these Judaizers have really sparked a crisis in the church. Now, you remember, friend, that the apostle in Acts 20 had promised that there would be wolves that would come into the church, not sparing the flock. Well, these Judaizers could be considered among that number. The Judaizers were teaching that it was not merely Christ alone, but it was actually even through circumcision that men would actually be saved. And so Gentiles who were converted, they saw themselves still outside of salvation, still outside of Christ, unless they had fulfilled the sacrament of circumcision. Unless that had been administered, they could experience no salvation. In other words, these Judaizers were causing havoc by, kind, by introducing a kind of syncretism. They were building, if you will, a new religion, partially comprised of the preaching of the apostles and partially comprised of the, of the traditions of the Pharisees. You see, what they were preaching, friend, is very simple. Through the act of circumcision, grace was genuinely carried over to the person to whom it was administered. It was the not terribly unlike the Roman Catholic ex opere operato, where simply the bare exercise of the sacrament actually produced real and saving benefits for the individual. And here, of course, we find the church very much distressed over this kind of teaching. The apostles refused to allow even one moment for these things to be taught and for those practices to be pressed upon these new converts. Now, friend, if that's, of course, the context, we need to ask, what is their response? How does the church respond? In the sixth verse, we're told, the apostles and elders came together for to consider this matter. In other words, friend, what you have here is a synod. You have those to whom the keys have been given, those keys that we considered last Lord's Day evening, gathered together to deal with the crisis. They're gathered together for Christ's church. They're gathered together as Christ's ministers. To uphold Christ's gospel for the good of Christ's 
people. And so they gathered. But as you come to verse 23, as we saw there, as they deliberate in the chapter, you'll find that they come to a very specific conclusion. And the conclusion leads them to disseminate that conclusion not only to the church in Jerusalem. The, the synod, of course, is held there. But note where the letters are sent. To Antioch, to Syria, and to Cilicia. Now the letters are given, but it's striking. If you just turn the page over in verse 16, to, sorry, to chapter 16, verse 4, you'll find how these letters are described. He says here that they, that is Paul and, and uh, Timotheus and others, they went through the cities, they delivered them the decrees for to keep that were ordained of the apostles and elders which were at Jerusalem. What's striking is these letters are not merely conceived to be simply suggestions. Luke here describes them as decrees. Now, the word decree could be translated very various ways. The word that lies behind our word here in chapter 16, verse 4, is the word, the Greek word, dogma. And of course, we understand even in the English that comes over to us as a kind of teaching. The doctrine of the church is often referred to as dogma. But it also relates to things such as what we would consider genuine decrees or ordinances. Uh, every time, for instance, Caesar's decrees are mentioned, whether in Luke 2 or in Acts 17, it's this word that's used to describe the act. Caesar has made a decree. The expectation, in other words, is that there would be obedience applied to it. The way you could look at this in the original is, as one dictionary defines it, this kind of decree is a formal statement concerning rules or regulations that are to be observed. Now, friend, what's striking about this, as we look at this text, is that what is going on in Jerusalem this council, this synod of apostles and elders that have gathered together. They're writing letters, but these letters are taken to be, according to Luke, as decrees. These are ordinances that are to be observed, and not merely in Jerusalem, but even as far as Antioch, Cilicia, and Syria. And so what do we find here? Well, friend, drawing from that, we find a few very basic ideas. We find, first of all, that the apostles and elders are joined together as ruling together. Isn't that striking? This is not merely a synod of apostles. This is apostles and elders. And when the church is given these decrees, it is given in the name of apostles and elders. The ordinary and the extraordinary officers of the church of Christ are both presented as ruling in the church here. The second thing that we can't miss either is the cause. The cause here is an ecclesiastical crisis. The people of God are distressed by particular teachers They're distressed by the kinds of dissension that this has caused among her numbers. And friend, that's very ordinary, isn't it? Is that not the very thing that Christ promised would not only attend the experience of the apostolic days, but would, through the running centuries, be characteristic of the life of the church? She would know these kinds of crises. And then what is striking about this text, friend, is that also those ordinary officers, after the apostles have have gone on, They're also part of this council to deal with what is really an ordinary circumstance in the church's existence. This ecclesiastical crisis. What we find here then, as we draw to our head for this evening, is that this text sets forward the lawfulness of sins. It sets forward the lawfulness of sins, and with other scriptures, it even teaches us that courts have been established by Christ for the good of particular churches. Courts have been established by Christ for the good of particular churches. 
And I want us to consider that briefly under three headings. I want us to consider how these courts, where these courts have their origin, what is their organization, and finally, what is their objective. And friend, before I go any further, I suppose it's necessary for me to step back just for a moment. It was said of George Whitfield that he was able to always find that text and always that theme that was most addressed to stir the soul and really work upon the souls of men. And so, friend, you don't find George Whitfield often preaching about ecclesiology. You don't find men often preaching about synods like we have in Acts 15. But that should not deter us from looking at this and looking at this spiritually. Beloved, as we said at the onset, the church is a holy thing. And so as we take up even this subject that seems so mundane in the eyes of the world, it should have our hearts. This is the word of our God, as he dictates to us what is for our good and the order of his church. And so for the origin of these courts, we first of all are reminded that the apostles and the elders here are gathered together. A friend, the, the presence of the apostles reminds us, of course, that these things are done and are done in the sense that God has established them as lawful. Christ has ordained such things, and we've already seen this before. He's ordained the likes of sessions, presbyteries, synods, and assemblies. And he's done this by taking together what we've seen before. Just look for a moment at the character of churches themselves. And look at the way the word is used throughout the New Testament. For instance, friend, the church at Corinth is described initially in the singular. It is the church in Corinth. But what's striking is as you move through the epistle, you'll find this. The apostle writes, let your women keep silence in the churches. For it is not permitted under them to speak, but they are commanded to be under obedience as says the law. What's striking is, as you read then 2 Corinthians 1, you find that this church that is addressed here actually comprises an area, a geographical location, that is twice the size of Ulster. So, Corinth and all of the chaos, says the Apostle in 2 Corinthians, it actually comprises a vast number of cities, a vast number of towns, many of which Paul did frequent and preach. And here in 1 Corinthians 14, he describes the church at Corinth as having churches in her number. That is, other congregations within this one church at Corinth. And so, friend, what does that teach us? Well, it teaches us something very basic. That the church, as it's used in the New Testament, doesn't always and only refer to a single congregation. In the scriptures, the idea of Catholicity actually extends itself so that an entire church at Corinth, that a regional body can be considered a church, even if that regional body has a number of congregations annexed to it. Now, friend, what does that teach us? Well, if Christ has given to the church those ministers that we saw before, if he's given those governments, those forms of government that he's established before, well then, friend, we can't miss the fact that even the character of the church teaches that sins, presbyteries and so forth, ordained to Christ. But even beyond that, friend, we see this even arising from the need for discipline. Take Matthew 18 for a moment. Christ says, if your erring brother shall neglect to hear them, that is, those two witnesses that are brought with with the offended brother, tell it unto the church, says Christ. Now, to the church indiscriminately, that is, to the members of the congregation. Well, friend, holding that text together with the rest of the New Testament, we find out something very particular. We find out that instead of everyone ruling over the people of God, you have here that there are those specifically, says the writer of the Hebrews, that ruled over you. Remember them, he writes, which have the rule over you. Obey them that have the rule over you and submit yourselves, for they watch for your souls as they must give account 
that they may do it with joy and not with grief, for that is unprofitable for you. The idea of discipline is tied to those whom Christ has deposited the keys, and those particularly. But even from there, friend, even the order of the Church of Christ requires these kinds of courts that go from the session all the way up to the regional body. Take, for instance, how the Apostle describes Timothy's ordination. It was by the hands of the presbytery. 1 Timothy 4.14 The presbytery, the gathering of the elders, are there for ordination. If, if officers of the church are to continue in the church of Christ, we are to expect it only through the hand of the presbytery that they're ordained. And then finally, friend, you have the example of the, of the Old Testament, don't you? In the law, Moses writes this, If there arise a matter too hard for thee in judgment, bring matter, being matters of controversy within thy gates, then shalt thou arise, and get thee up, and note this, into the place which the Lord thy God shall choose. Now, it's Deuteronomy 17. Now note what the writer says in 2 Chronicles 19. In Jerusalem did Jehoshaphat said of the Levites, and of the priests, and of the chief of the fathers of Israel, for the judgment of the Lord, and for the controversies, when they returned to Jerusalem. Friend, what you have, in other words, here, is the apostles in Acts 15 doing everything you would expect them to do, given all that we've just said. The example of the Old Testament, the character of the church itself, the reality that it's the church of Christ that is governed through Christ's ministers. All of these things tell us that Acts 15 is quite expected, actually, especially whenever these kinds of difficulties arise in the broader church. I said before, friend, our point is to show that these courts originate from Christ. And so what does that mean? As the Word of God holds out these truths to us, friend, how are we supposed to think of these sessions Presbyteries, synods. Well, the analogy, I think, comes best, of course, from shepherding. Just as it is in the case of those who are called to be ministers in the Church of Christ, Christ uses means, like a shepherd would use a rod and a staff, like a shepherd would use a field and sheepdogs. He uses these things to keep his people secure. He uses these things as helps to his flock. But friend, you can't miss this. It is Christ who's using them. You see, if you're expecting the councils, the sins of the church themselves, to be good for you, you've missed the point entirely. You miss, for instance, what you have and what we saw in Ephesians 4. You see, in that text, if there's any good that comes through their ministries, it's to be attributed to Christ alone. Your ministers will be errant. Your synods and your presbyterians make mistakes. But friend, when their rulings are good, and when they are benefiting the people of God, you're supposed to acknowledge that it's only through the hand of Christ that these things come to you. He is simply shepherding his church in these ways. And so, beloved, we can't miss the fact that basically, in its most fundamental application, what we have here is the idea that Christ's order must be considered precious. Of course, because he's the one who's established it. It must be regarded as it must be regarded with reverence because of who has who has ordained it, and also the end for which it's been ordained, the good of God's people. But that brings us briefly to the organization of the church. What you have here, friend, as we said before, is a church, a meeting rather, that's convened in the church in Jerusalem. But as the decree goes out, it does not influence only that church. 
It goes to Antioch, Syria, and Cilicia, which teaches us that courts, and particularly elders, in author- have authority over other particular congregations. According to the order and rule of Christ, it's not the case that elders are particularly elders only in their own local congregation and have no authority elsewhere. Now, in Acts 15, the idea is that these men saw their responsibility as extending even beyond Jerusalem. They had an obligation to shepherd the church even beyond their own locality. And what you can't miss here, friend, is that even if, even if that's true in an individual case, you can't miss that as you apply Matthew 18, the, the idea is, is that not only are individuals under these obligations to, to come under the course of the church, but even, friend, churches, local congregations, even presbyteries, also must follow and adhere to Matthew 18 themselves. If there's an errant congregation... For instance, like the church in Galatia that was very much dominated by the Judaizers. It was up then to the next court to deal with them, such as the synod that met here in Acts 15. The idea here is very basic. As you have in Matthew 18, the obligation for an individual to go before the court of Christ to adjudicate the matter, so also is it the case with every other body, whether it's a local congregation, a presbytery, a synod even. And so what we have here, friend, as we look at this, is that the apostles are doing this work as ministers for the good of the churches, even though those congregations are well without their own locality. But as you look at verse 28, I want you to notice this just briefly. This is precisely how these men see themselves acting. They see themselves ruling for the case, for the, for the sake of Antioch, Cilicia, and Syria as God's ministers. I want you to look at verse 28 just for a moment. As they're writing here, he says here, For it seemed good to the Holy Ghost and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these necessary things. You see, beloved, as you see in this text, a church that is gathered together to set forward a decree. What is the substance or the material of the decree? According to them, it is no greater burden than what was already given them in the Word of God. They function here then as only ministers. Their power, as we said last words the evening, is ministerial, not magisterial. And so Matthew Cole, I think, helpfully paraphrases the text here. As ministers or God's stewards, we write, who acquainted them with these things in discharge of their duty that they might appear themselves to be faithful. In other words, friend, when we look at this council, we're supposed to understand that they were not creating doctrine. They were not creating new practices by their own authority. They were functioning purely ministerially. Westminster Divines put it this way in the Grand Debate. They said, We do not say that councils do bind absolutely whatever their decrees may be, but when they err, they are no otherwise binding than as erring elders. In other words, friend, though they're capable of erring, their authority is grounded upon the Word of God. They are very much capable of being, of being themselves misled in any given case. But when they're ruling rightly, they're not creating anything new. They're simply recognizing the truth that is already there. My friend, if we look at this text, we can't miss that there is a particular objective. That's our third and our final heading this evening. Why is the church gathered in Acts 15 in the way that it is? You see, friend, as we go back to this text, we can't do so rightly without thinking about the Judaizing context. We can't miss the fact that what was taking place was really a subversion of the gospel, a hazarding of the souls that were committed to the cares of those who were ministers in Antioch, Cilicia, Syria, and even Jerusalem. 
And what's striking as you read through the New Testament, Acts 15 and what's decreed there becomes very formative for the rest of the scriptures. Take, for instance, the Epistle of the Galatians. The Galatians themselves were under the influence of these kinds of Judaizers. Maybe not these men in particular, but certainly their sect. These were men who, of course, looked at all of the decrees of the Council of Jerusalem, spurned them, and preferred the Judaizing sect over the apostles. And so the Epistle of the Galatians is written to them. What's striking is, as you read the Epistle of the Galatians, the apostle enforces, urges, what was decided at the council. What's also striking, friends, as you turn to 1 Corinthians, you have the opposite side of the coin. What's striking is the organization of 1 Corinthians reflects exactly the organization of the decrees of the Council of Jerusalem. The Apostle is dealing with those who are committing fornication, those who are eating things offered to idols, those who are profaning the Lord's Supper, those who are acting as Gentiles. In other words, you have two extremes. You have the Apostle having to urge upon the Church of Christ the need to hold fast what has been received not erring to the left or to the right. And friend, that is really the purpose of Acts 15. That is the purpose for which Christ has established courts of the church, that ministers, your session, that you yourselves, that all in the church of Christ would be kept in the gospel medium through the means that Christ has established. Now, beloved, as we look at this then, we can't miss then that these courts are established for the well-being of the church. These things are for our good. Um, And beloved, when they function for Christ's sake, we're to recognize, of course, and only through his wisdom, we're to recognize that it's his hand that is working through them. And that leads us to the question, doesn't it? Do we long to be under the ordinance of Christ? Do we long to be under his rule, under the means that he's appointed for the good of his people. Friend, there is no there is no coincidence whatsoever in the fact that as the world continues to run headlong into rebellion, and that that infiltrates the church, that more and more concern for the courts of the Church of Christ and the order of Christ's church is diminished. The less there is an interest in piety, the less there is an interest in the means of grace established to cultivate that godliness. And so the question is, do we long? Do we long to be found in the footsteps of the flock where Christ, for his own glory and for his people's good, exercises these helps for their faith and for their practice? But Christian, as we come to this, as we close, as we've said before, we can't miss that in the church of Christ we're to see here Christ's continued care for his people. Friend, often it's the case that as we look at these matters, we have an aversion immediately to authority. And if we were simply here preaching the authority of men, that would be rightly understood. But with one voice, the scriptures preach this. If there has been a government established in the church of Christ, it is for Christ's use as an instrument in his hand for his people's good. Beloved, we live in a land very unique. We live in a land in which Christ has preserved the government of his church, the confession of the truth, when so many haven't. And so, beloved, we have in this text a reminder 
even for us this evening. That, beloved, if we have these things, if they're exercised faithfully, it's merely a manifestation of Christ's continued care for us. He should receive these things, I should receive these things, we should all receive these things, as from the hand of Christ. But the exhortation as we close is just this. Beloved, the call here is not to submit to the church. The call here is not to submit to the ministers of the gospel, to a session or to any other assembly. The call here is to submit to Zion's only king head, who's established these things for his own, for his good, for his people's good, and for his glory. And the church is a holy institution. And so, friend, we should love her organization, but because we have come to this king, we should love her organization, even her courts, for Christ's sake, who has established them for his glory and for our good. Amen.